Welcome to the Functional Nutrition Podcast. I'm your host, Aaron Holt. I'm a functional medicine nutritionist with a feisty attitude and over a decade of clinical experience. I work with women all over the world through my online programs, and I'm also the founder of the Functional Nutrition Academy, a 12-month practitioner mentorship where I help other nutrition pros level up with functional medicine methodologies. I've got a bone to pick with diet culture and the conventional healthcare model that are both systematically failing so many of us. Creating a new model is my life's work, and this is what the show's all about. Please keep in mind this podcast is created for educational purposes only and should never be used as a replacement for medical diagnosis or treatment. If you like what you hear today, I'd love for you to subscribe, leave a review in iTunes, share with a friend, and keep coming back for more. Thanks for joining me. Now let's dive deep. Hey guys, Aaron here. Welcome back and thanks for joining us. I'm here with Kyle Peruge. Kyle, what's up with you this week? Hey everyone. Um, another busy week for me over here. Uh, in terms of self-care, that little self-care segment we like to do, I did manage to try far infrared sauna for the first time, which was Ooh. pretty cool. Mm. If you have no idea what I'm talking about, let me explain. Far infrared saunas use heat and light to help you sweat and detoxify your body. So basically, you're getting all the beneficial rays you'd normally get from the sun without having to worry about skin damage or cancer. So I'm going to read the following list of benefits from this type of sauna. So detoxifying from heavy metals and environmental toxins, increasing blood circulation and oxygen supply to damaged tissues, which helps with chronic joint or muscle pain, improving heart function and reducing blood pressure, boosting the immune system, anti-aging, and lastly, it's been shown to improve the quality of life in people with diabetes because they often suffer from chronic fatigue syndrome, pain, depression, other heart complications, all of those which are beneficial for, um, which the sun is beneficial for. So I did it for an hour. I had the door cracked open for a large portion of that uh, just to get some fresh air and cool down because it is hot. I personally decided to do this because I did heavy metal testing earlier this year and found that I have high levels of lead and mercury. So I've been on a six-month detox program through my doctor, taking supplements every day for that. And then I also suffer from chronic low back pain from an injury from almost 15 years ago. So I definitely felt better afterwards, and I also got to catch up on some articles for school. So that was a win-win for me. Well, yeah, right. Um, you were reading U.S. Weekly, weren't you? I, I, <laughs> you know, a little bit of People Magazine, a little bit of research articles, balance. Uh, it was not super expensive either, either, if that's what you're wondering. It was um, $40 for an hour. I went to Blazing Lotus Healing House in Asheville. And I don't know, I think it was totally worth it. Um, so yeah, that's my story. What's up with you? Well, first of all, I want to get back to that because I'm so jealous that you, I don't, I don't know if there's a place around here that does that. And if anybody's listening, hello, is anybody out yeah. there? <laughs> if anybody's hello? listening, period, end of discussion. If anybody's listening that knows a place in Seacoast, New Hampshire, please let me know because I really want to check that out. I actually looked into getting, um, they're called pocket saunas. So it's a near-red infra, 
um, you know what exactly what you're talking yes. about, but it's for your house. But they're like two grand. Yep, I looked and at those. You did, and I'm like, ugh, my husband's gonna have my head if I like start keep spending my money on like all this nutty yeah. stuff. Yeah. But then I looked into like you can make your own. And what? I almost put, yeah, there's like, a, is this like a tinfoil hat? Like what, <laughs> what is going on? <laughs> no, it seems pretty legitimate, but like, I'm like, I'm going to burn my freaking house down if I try to do this. <laughs> I like really almost bought all the supply, <laughs> supplies and like did it in a closet. But I think just like for the safety of my marriage and my house and my yeah. family, maybe I should just like go and do it somewhere else. So if anybody knows of a place nearby, give me a heads up. Um, anyway. We were talking about yoga in the last episode, right? So as a yoga teacher, I'm obviously a huge fan of that. Um, I was having a lot of joint pain around the time of my scleroderma diagnosis. So that was a little bit over two years ago now. And my chief complaints were my shoulders, elbows, wrists, hands, so my upper extremities. So I teach and practice vinyasa yoga, which involves a lot of weight-bearing activities on those upper extremities, which is really tough for me with the joint pain. And I would feel worse after class rather than better. So that was a huge bummer. And I really had to give up my beloved vinyasa practice for a while, which honestly was really tough for me because mentally this practice was so integral in my recovery and just getting comfortable in my own skin. So not having that was tough, but fortunately I was able to replace it with Bikram, which is hot yoga. Many of you guys know that 90 minutes, same 26 postures. Um, with this, there's no upper body weight, um, or no upper, yeah, body weight bearing in this practice. So the reason that I bring this up is because if anyone out there is listening that struggles with, with wrist pain or shoulder pain, which is a very, very common complaint in a vinyasa practice, definitely try out a different style of yoga. Um, Bikram could be a great option for you. I didn't even know that that was like, I had, I've never tried, I think maybe I've taken one Bikram class, but wrist pain always with vinyasa. Yes. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's really tough. It's really tough for that. So that's the reason that I kind of switched switched over to Bikram is because it was so much easier on my upper, you know, my upper body. Um, so I, so many people will say I can't do yoga because X, Y, and Z, but I just think there's a yoga out there for everybody. So keep going until you find the right style that works for you. Even Kyle, you know, you started yin practice, so yeah. you just got to keep, keep, keep on trucking until you find something that works. Anyway, um, that wasn't even my point specifically for me. I think the sweating and this kind of ties into your sauna, the sweating in Bikram has been pretty instrumental in my whole autoimmune journey because it really does give me the opportunity to sweat, sweat stuff out. And we don't really get that much in our lives. Um, but as Kyle and I know sweating is such a necessary part of detoxification. It's just one of the ways our bodies move stuff out. And when there's some type of chronic health issue, supporting detox can be really helpful. It's kind of funny that we were both doing detox stuff this week. I know. Um, Side note here, if you are interested in learning more about detox, I have a detox guide on my website. You can go to erinholthealth.com forward slash products. I don't recommend this. Kyle was talking about heavy metal detox. I really recommend working with a practitioner for that sort of thing. This is not, that's not something that you want to go, go about on your own. Yeah. Um, but for just general like health purposes, um, you can check out that my detox guide, but if there's something significant going on, like get help from a trusted practitioner. Um, but back to self-care. So six months ago, 
I learned that I had joint hypermobility syndrome. And that is really what was causing the joint pain, not so much the scleroderma, which is very interesting. I've been working with a phenomenal physical therapist. I'm going to give a shout out to both Kristen and Emily at Oceanside Physical Therapy in Stratum, New Hampshire. They had me temporarily step back from yoga, so all yoga, including Bikram, in favor of doing more bar and Pilates-style classes. And I was basically pain-free after working with them for just a couple of months, which is absolutely incredible because I've been dealing with this joint pain for years. And so over the past couple of months, they've been encouraging me to sort of dip my toe back into the whole yoga world. And I am not historically a very good dipper. I'm more of a (laughs) diver. (laughs) So I'm back to practicing like three to five times a week yoga. But I do have to be super careful and modify everything I do, every single pose, which I think is is self-care in and of itself, is just being super cautious with my body. And then one thing I really do want to point out too is that outside of the whole exercise and movement component is is the community piece of yoga. So, you know, you get the movement piece, you get the sweating piece. If you're doing a hot yoga, you get the mind benefits, the stress, but then the community piece is like something that I think that we overlook. This is something that I'm just really starting to see in the past few months. Like I can be having a tough day physically, mentally, whatever. And I go to a yoga class and then I just get to feed off the energy in the room. It's just so awesome. And I think that's something that we really do forget about, especially, me as a mom and entrepreneur, I have to force myself to get out there and to mix it up with people. And I think that's also part of my self-care. I couldn't agree more about the community piece. Um, it had been a really, really long time since I had been to a yoga studio. I typically work out at home. I get up in the morning and work out right in my living room. So recently when I started going to classes again, honestly, the biggest thing I felt afterwards was just a sense of connection to the community around me, which I obviously am not getting working out by myself at home. So I second that. Yeah. And that, I mean, even what we're studying in our, in our, in our functional nutrition nutrition program, that community piece is so healing and so, so important for overall health. All right. So this week we're going to jump right in and answer a listener question. Before we started recording this podcast, we reached out to people on social media and through my newsletter. P.S. Sign up for that if you haven't already. You can go to my website to do that. And um, we got a lot of questions. So that's pretty awesome. Remember that this podcast is really all about responding to the questions that you guys have. So please feel free to reach out with anything you want addressed on the show. It can be a general topic. It can be a really specific question to you. Um, and you can contact contact us directly through our social media channels. I'm Erin Holt Health. And Kyle is True Healing RD on Instagram. And then you can also fill out the contact form on my website, AaronHoltHealth.com, in order to do that. All right, let's get into it. So today's question is from Emily in Hampton, New Hampshire. Talk to me about cooking with ghee and coconut oil. This is probably a dumb question. It's not. But I remember Erin saying in her Fueled and Fit program not to let the oil smoke while cooking. Why? I now use coconut oil in place of butter because I had to give up dairy while breastfeeding. But why can some people who are sensitive to dairy still eat ghee? What do you do when, when do you use ghee and when do you use coconut oil? Also, how do you save fat from meat and cook it in your veggies or other things? I've heard this before and want to know how and why. 
All right. So first of all, the Fueled and Fit program Emily mentioned is the 21-day online nutrition and lifestyle program I run. And I definitely spend some time chatting about fats in that program because I think confusion about fats and misinformation about fats and poor quality fats in our food system is one of the biggest food issues we face today. I love your um, Fueled and Fit program. I have done that I don't know, at least twice before, which you know. Yeah, you're a junkie. Um, Yeah, I am. So these are great questions, and I think people really want to hear an answer to them um, and just make some sense of this whole fat and oil thing. All right, so let's start off with talking about ghee because not everybody knows what that is. Ghee is clarified butter where the milk solids have been removed. It's a traditional Ayurvedic food and I'm not an expert on Ayurveda so I don't even know if I'm saying it right. As I I'm saying it out loud. I always like, say this right. This I, sounds I mean, wrong. wrong. Yeah. Yep. Every time. So we're not going to like speak too much to that just because I don't want to butcher it but <laughs> just know that it's been eaten as part of traditional Indian culture forever and it is known to have healing properties. People who may be sensitive to dairy can get away with eating ghee, both Kyle and myself included, because most ghee is free from casein and lactose. So when you remove the milk solids, you remove the casein and the lactose. Casein is a protein in milk and lactose is a milk sugar. And people can react poorly to one or both of these. This is actually something that's often misunderstood, I think. People assume that if there's an issue with dairy, it's a lactose intolerance. So they can drink lactose-free milk or eat hard cheeses, lower in lactose. And this might be very true for some people. People, but others really respond to the actual proteins and need to avoid dairy altogether. So if you are sensitive to dairy and you want to try out ghee, be sure to buy a ghee that is certified casein and lactose free and always buy grass-fed, be- uh, grass-fed ghee because it's going to contain the highest nutrition without the garbage of conventional dairy. So some brands that I like are Tin Star Foods, Pure Indian Foods, Fourth in Heart. Uh, they make a Madagascar vanilla bean ghee that is out of this world. I love their their oh, ghee is so good, so good. And, and a I truffle. Order... They do a truffle one too, which is oh, oh. I didn't know that. Fourth oh, and yeah. Heart does. Yeah, so good. I'm gonna need to get on that. Do you? I just always order those on Amazon. Where do you get yours? I wait until Whole Foods does a sale. Um, oh, okay. Yeah. I've, so I've... I don't have a Whole Foods by me. So it's oh. a lot of Amazon Prime up in this yep. mother. Um, And then Organic Valley is one that you can find in most markets. And um, they do a a pretty good job with their pasture-raised dairy. So why would you use ghee? For starters, it's nutritious. Uh, Ghee from grass-fed dairy contains fat-soluble vitamins A, D, E, and K2. It's also a source of conjugated linoleic acid, which is often called CLA, and butyric acid, which is very supportive. It's a it's a fatty acid that's supportive for the gut lining. We're going to be talking a lot more about dairy in one of our next episodes. So if you do want to hear more about this, be sure to check back in um, because we'll go into a lot more detail than we are now. Ghee also holds up well to high heat. Lactose and casein can oxidize at high heat. So because these are removed from the ghee, it's a really safe cooking fat. And I'm going to explain what all of that means in just a minute. So Kyle, I know you use ghee. So what do you typically use it for? I just use it anytime I'm looking for like that buttery flavor. So fish and seafood, sweet potatoes, uh, the occasional bulletproof coffee, veggies, eggs. What about you? 
Yeah, I mean, pretty much all of that. Definitely fish. Um, I do it with my eggs a lot. I mean, basically the same stuff. I make salmon patties, um, salmon cakes. Those are on my website as well. And I like the ghee, the ghee for that. I'll do a lot of blended soups or even like a cauliflower Alfredo sauce. And I'll just put in like a couple tablespoons of ghee right into the blender as I'm Mm. blending up the hot, the hot veggies. Um, And it just gives it that like really robust, um, rich flavor. Um, and then I'll also throw it into fuel bites, another, another snack recipe that's on my website. Um, so she also asked about coconut oil, which we both use. I like coconut oil for a lot of the same things that we use ghee for eggs, veggies, fuel bites. It really just depends on the seasoning I'm using and what kind of flavor I want the cooking fat to have or not have. Uh, coconut oil has been a bit of a hot topic lately, or as usual, I guess I should say. Uh, we actually chose this particular question because we wanted to address the coconut oil isn't healthy, it's never been article from USA Today this past June. So Erin, let's hear your thoughts on that. Yeah, USA Today picked it up as did a few other a few other media channels. Um, if you haven't heard of it, it's basically the American Heart Association AHA advisory telling people to replace saturated fat with polyunsaturated fats like vegetable oils. And this is in order to reduce the risk of cardiovascular disease. You guys, this is not new stuff. It's the same stuff we've been hearing for decades. And they're not specifically calling out coconut oil. It's simply an extrapolation of the saturated fat is bad conversation because uh, coconut oil contains saturated fat. And we know that coconut oil is trendy. I think their stat is 73% of Americans view coconut oil as a healthy fat. So I really think that's why um, coconut oil was sort of falling on the cross in this recent media frenzy. But it's really all about the saturated fat. Now, cardiovascular disease is the leading cause of death in the U.S. and even globally. So I do think it's important to do this work. I'm not discrediting that at all. However, we have to question the validity of two things here. Number one is the funding that AHA receives. And number two are issues with nutrition data. The heart check label is something that AHA puts on certain foods. You might have seen it before. Um, Start to pay attention. You'll definitely see it. And they have to meet a certain set of criteria in order to get that heart check label. But the label does cost money. And who can afford this label? Big food companies. AHA is a nonprofit, so of course they need to make their money for their research. But when you see this label on heavily processed, high sugar foods, you have to wonder what the heck is going on here. Um, so that's my that's my first concern. And secondly, when it comes to nutrition research, it's not always hard and fast data. And I think this is something that the American public does not understand, but really, really should understand. When, I, when I'm saying this, an example is the more recent stuff that came out from the AHA, so the stuff we're talking about now, it's based on a meta-analysis, which combines data from multiple studies to come up with one main conclusion. So they take a bunch of different studies that have already been done, and then they pool them all together, and based on that, they come out with a conclusion. The downside to this is that 
companies or researchers can cherry pick what studies they use and studies that support their theory, they're going to be more apt to use. And this really, really happens a lot. So it doesn't always give us an objective look at what the actual hard facts are with nutrition science. Now, on top of that, much of our nutrition information and how it relates to human health is based on dietary recall. This means that people have to report what they ate, sometimes dating back years. Now, as a nutritionist, when I have my clients do dietary recall for three days, they have a hard time remembering what they ate. I mean, like, think about it. Just think back to yesterday or two days ago. Can you remember every single thing you ate? Probably not. Yet we're asking people to think back days, weeks, months, even years, and this is what we're basing research off of. So point being, it's not the most reliable. Another thing to keep in mind is that dietary studies often fail to address context. So for example, a study looking at saturated fat, is that fat within the context of a whole food diet or is it in the context of a heavily processed diet? You better believe that matters. Saturated fats within the framework of the standard American diet with lots of sugar and refined carbohydrates. Most of these studies are done on this diet, by the way. This is going to affect health differently than within the context of a real whole food ancestral diet with lots of fiber and plant matter. And then finally, it's very hard to control for variables in dietary studies. So you might be looking at someone's diet, but what about smoking or exercise or how they're living their lives outside of what what they're doing? What about their family health histories? Of course, all of this impacts their health outcome, not just what they're putting in their mouth. And when you're using human subjects living their lives out there in the world, you cannot control for all the variables, all the moving parts of their lives. So anyway, all of this to say is that studies aren't always hard and fast facts, and we have to remember that. These articles came out a few months ago. They're the same old saturated fat is bad rhetoric that we've heard for many, many years. And when we hear good fat, bad fat, for the most part, the average American consumer thinks that bad fat refers to saturated fat. Do you think that's true, Kyle? Yeah, and I I wish it just ended with the American consumers, but or the average consumer, but it's actually plenty of trained educators and experts think that also. For example, so we use handouts in the hospital to give to patients who need to be educated on diet and lifestyle changes. This happens in the outpatient setting also. One of the most popular ways to do this is to use the Nutrition Care Manual by the Academy of Nutrition and Dietetics. This is a database of over 100 different topics that they've created written material for. It also has calculators and some other good resources. It's a helpful site, um, but when you look more closely at the actual messages being given to the patients, that's where things start to get a bit sketchy. So... When you think of fat and diet, you might choose their heart-healthy handout. So what's recommended for that diet? You guessed it, canola and soybean oils. It also says to eat more soy foods for protein. They recommend replacing butter with reduced fat, whipped, or liquid spreads. I, I don't even know what to say to that. These are almost always made with soybean and canola oil, and they oftentimes have trans fat, which are called partially hydrogenated oils in the ingredients. 
But the packages, and this is where you should pay attention, the packages can say trans fat free as long as they have less than a half a gram per serving. So then the questions are, how many of you are only eating one serving? And what happens in your body when you're consuming these half gram amounts of trans fat on a regular or daily basis? That is such a good a good point and um, something that people need, need to pay attention to. Most of us know that trans fats are bad fats. We know that. We've, it's gotten plenty of press. Um, for those of you who don't know, trans fats are man-made fats. They do not occur anywhere in nature. And they are absolutely linked to cardiovascular disease. Amongst other health problems, the World Health Organization actually recommends the complete elimination of trans fats from our food. And I think because they're so widely known and accepted to be harmful, we all just assume that they're not in our food system anymore. But as recently as 2015, the Environmental Working Group found that over a third of packaged foods, that's a lot, you guys, over a third, in a grocery store contain trans fats. All the more reason to avoid processed and packaged foods. Um, the highest offenders were breakfast sandwiches, frozen pies and desserts, ready-to-eat foods, canned soups and meats. So basically just prepared convenience foods. And people are eating this stuff, a lot of it. So to Kyle's point, fractions of a gram can quickly add up to a significant amount. So really, I mean, it's in your best interest to avoid any packages and, and foods that say partially hydrate, hydrogenated anything. Just just avoid them at all costs. Yeah, absolutely. And to add to the diet handouts created by the Academy of Nutrition and Dietetics, what about the My Plate method, which replaced the old food pyramid? Again, their list of healthy options for fat are what they call vegetable oils, and this includes canola, corn, cottonseed, olive, peanut, safflower, soybean, and sunflower. So foods that use these oils the most are margarines, mayo, salad dressings, even nut butters, the list goes on and on. So whenever you think of a processed or a packaged food, you should be looking for these oils. The dietary guidelines for Americans recommend the same oils be used in place of butter and coconut oil, for example. So what the takeaway here is, and the most important piece, is where do you think the Academy of Nutrition and Dietetics, my plate, and the dietary guidelines from America's, for Americans come from? The USDA. So listen very closely to this next part. The USDA has two missions. These are not secrets, so this is this is public, uh, available to the public. The first mission of the USDA is to serve the health of the public. The other mission is to maximize the economic growth and profit for the agricultural sector of the U.S. economy. So if this is not a public uh, a conflict of interest, I don't know what is. Why is profit and growth listed anywhere near the health of the general public? This is why the messages get so skewed, because they are never 100% about the consumer's health. They're about money. So dietitians have actually grown so frustrated with the academy that a group was started called Dietitians for Professional Integrity. And they believe that sponsorship affects the public's perception of dietitians, that the public deserves nutrition education, nutrition information that isn't tainted by food industry interests. 
and that the academy should prioritize the public health instead of empowering and enabling big food. So just like we said in the first episode about health coaches and nutritionists, not all dietitians are created equal here. And some really are fighting the good fight and not just following whatever the Academy or the USDA is recommending. So there's so much to say about this topic that we will end up doing an episode all about cholesterol and understanding your lipid panel. We'll talk about statins and we'll also talk about more about where this fear of cholesterol came from in the first place. You know, I don't mean to be so outwardly dismissive of the USDA's recommendations, but when the MyPlate recommendations blatantly calls out vegetable oils as a healthy fat option, I just can't even. I mean, first of all, they're not even vegetable oils. Canola or rapeseed, which is its original name, very, very That's classy. not going to sell. <laughs> That's not going to sell. Um, it's not a vegetable. Corn, not a vegetable. Cotton, soy, these aren't veggies. So let's just call them what they are, industry refined oils. And let me explain why these are not good to consume. And this will also help to answer some of Emily's questions. So with that said, what are good fats to use? In our opinion, the best fats to use for heating and cooking are the more stable, saturated fats. So coconut oil is actually a really healthy option for this because it's saturated and heat stable. Coconut oil is also unique in the type of fatty acids it contains, something called medium chain triglycerides. These fats don't need pancreatic enzymes to be digested, so they're actually available for immediate energy. And coconut oil is also a traditional fat used throughout the, to- the tropics, so it's not like a new man-made fat like uh, these other vegetable oils we're talking about. Um, and finally, it's been studied for brain health, cognition, immune support, metabolism. So I truly, truly wouldn't worry about consuming coconut oil. So let's just put that to rest once and for all. Other good cooking fats include palm oil. Now a note about palm oil, there's some real sketchy business going on uh, with palm oil. So be sure that you're looking for a sustainable source if you're going to use it. I personally really like the Nutiva brand. Um, So we've got palm oil, ghee, which we already talked about, and even reserved lard or tallow from cooking animals. Um, which Emily was asking about. Now, grass-fed butter is good for lower temperatures. Monounsaturated fats like olive oil and avocado are also okay for cooking as long as you keep it to below 350 degrees. So Kyle, um, do you have any thoughts on this? What are your favorite cooking fats? What do you, what's your, what's your take? I'd probably use avocado oil more than coconut oil just because the flavor of coconut oil isn't something I want sometimes. Sometimes I love it. Sometimes it's just not what I'm looking for. I will admit that personally, I find it a little annoying sometimes that I have to melt the solid oils first just to melt the solid fats, just to be able to coat whatever it is that I'm making. So... I use coconut oil a lot more in the summer because it's liquid. And then once it gets solid in the winter, I usually don't use it as much. And that is just one little lazy aspect for me. (laughs) Um, Keep in mind that how stable the oil is to begin with plays a role in the stability it's going to have once it's refined and then being used in high heat cooking. This is why those nasty so-called vegetable oils we mentioned are so bad because they're already so processed and unstable to begin with that then you go ahead and use them in high heat cooking and they just become so unstable and damaged. They are not things that you want in your body. So pay attention to the labels listing the smoke points just to be aware, not that they're perfect. Um, 
Just pay attention. Pay attention to whether something is refined or unrefined and try to just have variety so that if you aren't using the most ideal oil at the perfect temperature, this isn't something that you're doing day in and day out. Yep, that's true. I always buy cold-pressed, unrefined oils, whether that's coconut or olive oil or whatever. And I think that this brings up a good point. You just got to do what you feel comfortable with, given the information you have. We don't have to be super dogmatic about food with these hard and fast rules. I mean, Kyle feels good using avocado oil sometimes for higher heat, based on the research that she's done. I think that the takeaway message here is that saturated fat from proper sources is okay to use. And MUFAs or monounsaturated fats are another great option for health, especially for lower temps and cold purposes. But polyunsaturated fats should never be used for cooking due to their instability and reactivity. In fact, polyunsaturated fats should probably just never be eaten when they come in the form of these refined oils like canola, soybean oil, etc. All right, let's tackle Emily's last question. Since reserved animal fats are a stable fat to cook with, how do you save fat from meat to use for cooking? I don't actually like to use lard or any other leftover animal fat for cooking. I just started eating meat again about a year ago, and I really, really appreciate the concept of this, of using it rather than throwing it out. It's like making bone broth from a carcass rather than just throwing it out. So I like that aspect of it. It's just not a flavor that I tend to crave when I'm when I'm cooking. Yeah, that's me. Yeah, I'm right there with you. And again, I was a vegetarian for 20 years and I didn't start eating meat until after Hattie was born. So I'm kind of in the same boat. Like I don't really necessarily love the flavor, um, but I think for, you know, I think we're, we're in the minority there in terms of being vegetarians uh, forever. So for those looking to do it, I think it's a great idea. And this is only in reference to properly raised animals because just like, just like us, animals store their toxins in their fat. And so conventional animals definitely have a lot more toxins. So I, I wouldn't I wouldn't recommend doing this with with a conventionally raised animal. Only some only something that's been properly raised, properly fed from a farm, all that jazz. Um, and what you can do is just basically so let's use bacon for an example because it's a really easy one. And I do oftentimes save my bacon grease. So you cook the bacon and then all this there's all this extra fat. You simply just strain it off, put it into a glass jar, and you can keep it right on the counter because it's a saturated fat. I'll oftentimes keep it in the fridge just because it makes me feel better, um, and then use that to cook other stuff. And why would you do this? Emily wanted to know. Well, fat contains fat-soluble vitamins, so vitamins A, vitamin D, vitamin E, vitamin K. And so not only does it add flavor to food, but it's also going to add a lot of dense nutrition. And I think, and you, Kyle, you talked about bone broth. And one thing that I do with my bone broth is, I'll, for let's use chicken, I'll throw in the whole carcass, like you said, and I'll put the skin in there, and then I don't strain the fat off. So obviously, the skin's going to produce a lot of fat, and I'll leave that fat right in there just for the for the nutrition, really, and for the taste. Um, that's one way that I reserve reserve animal fat, and. Going back, I mean, historically and traditionally, we we ate animals and we ate them top to tail. So we ate muscle meat like we do now, but we also ate organ meat and we, you know, we did stuff with the bones and we did stuff with with the collagen. And so we were getting all of these 
all of these different components of the animal, we've moved away from that where we eat, you know, chicken breast in this in this day and age. And so by eating the animal and by eating the fat and, and using the, the carcass to make bone broth and doing all that stuff, we're really getting a more uh, robust and complex nutrient profile, which I think is, it serves us in, in the way of health. Um, so... I think the whole fat thing really sums up the state of affairs um, of our food attitude. We think that highly refined and processed food made in a factory, it's foodstuffs that have just come out on the scene in the last like 100 years. We think these things are healthier and they're superior to real natural fats that humans have been eating forever. I mean, that's weird, right? When you hear it said out loud, it's weird. But yet that's the belief we all subscribe to. And we have this collective attitude that food additives and anything given to us by the food industry is innocent until proven guilty, even down to herbicides and pesticides used on our food. And yet we seem to have the exact opposite attitude toward traditional foods. They're guilty until proven innocent. And to me, it just seems ass backwards. So we've established in this podcast that well-sourced whole food saturated fats are fine to eat. But how do you feel, Kyle, because I know this is going to be a, a, a question that comes up. How do you feel about the whole add fat to everything craze that's going on, whether it's bulletproof coffee or, or whatever? Yeah, I, I tried to get on the bulletproof train a while ago, but coffee and I don't always agree. And there were a few times when I would actually make it and I'd get a bit of a stomach ache from it. I think it was more because I would have it on an empty stomach. But for those of you who have no idea what bulletproof coffee is, it's coffee, MCT, which is medium chain triglyceride oil and grass fed ghee. Um, you could also add vanilla extract to it, but you have to blend it in a blender. Have to. You can't shake it. You can't stir it. You have to blend it in a blender. And what ends up happening when you do that is you get like this creamy kind of coffee as if you put cream in it. You could do a Google search to find out more about this if you're interested. But um, I don't I don't uh, subscribe to the add fat to everything um, thing at all. But I do have smoothies for breakfast and I add MCT oil to the smoothies so that I have some kind of fat in there. And you want to have fat and protein in your smoothies so you stay full longer. So I use collagen powder for the protein and I use the MCT oil for the fat. And I like the MCT oil because it's cheaper for me to buy that for smoothies than it is for me to buy uh, avocados if I was using that as my fat every time. Oh, that's interesting. I just throw like everything, <laughs> avocados, MCT, <laughs> coconut milk. I'm like fat bomb central with my smoothies. Um, so clearly I'm not fat phobic at all. Um, I, I do eat a pretty darn high fat diet and I, I like the, the bulletproof coffee. Okay. I think it does tend to give people a tummy ache if you drink it on an empty stomach and you're not used to it. Um, you know, I'm not a huge fan, but, but I don't have like a problem with it. I think, I think the issue I see is that someone reads an article about MCT oil or coconut oil, and then they start dumping tablespoons of it into their coffee without changing anything else, thinking they're being super healthy. People just want this like magic bullet without changing their diet or changing their lifestyle. And honestly, adding a bunch of fat isn't really doing you any favors unless you're under eating fat to begin with. It's basically just 
dumping a ton of calories onto what you're already doing. So I do not think it's it's the the magic bullet. I don't think it's like the answer to everything. But I mean, if you like it and you do it, I, I think it's totally fine. So hopefully that cleared that up. So anything else you want to add, Kyle? I think that just about covers it. This was a great episode and awesome questions. So keep them coming. Yeah, totally, you guys. Um, you know, send them to Kyle and I on Instagram or go to my website, erinholthealth.com. And we will catch you next episode. Thanks for joining in. Thanks for joining me for this episode of the Functional Nutrition Podcast. If you'd like to submit a question to the show, fill out the contact form at erinholthealth.com. If you got something from today's show, don't forget, subscribe, leave a review, share with a friend, and keep coming back for more. Take care of you.